Welcome back, everybody, to Couch to Couch with Chuck LeBlanc. Uh, today I have Jackie Shoemaker-Holmes. Jackie is a mother, poet, truth warrior, and motherhood disruptor. As a University of British Columbia-trained sociologist and empowerment specialist, she is privileged and honored to work with women and mothers very much like herself, ambitious, efficient, effective, enthusiastic, and passionate people who know how to do life and business, and who know how to do them all well but also need non-judgmental support and guidance, just like everyone does. Jackie started all of this because she experienced severe postpartum depression and anxiety following the birth of her daughter in 2015. And she has since committed to ensuring that she does everything she can so that no mother feels as alone or as shameful as she did during that difficult time. Jackie holds a doctorate and two master's degrees, and it took her until she was 40 years old to decide to live life on her own terms by translating her vast experience in academia, nonprofits, all levels of government, and a pit stop in economic development into a business that empowers women and bears her name and credentials. Jackie Shoemaker Holmes, PhD, Empowerment for Resilience. Welcome to the show, Jackie. I'm so happy to be here, Chuck. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. I'm excited to have you here. I know we had a blast on your podcast just a couple of weeks ago, so I was just waiting to get you back uh, on, I guess, on my turf, even though the turfs are similar. So that doesn't make much sense, but you know what I mean? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And so I wanted to, you know, as typical for the podcast, we'll go in any direction that ends up happening, uh, which is very similar to the contents of my brain. Uh, But what sparks for me specifically, and I was wondering if you wanted to hop in and start on that, would be the empowerment and resilience piece. And what I wanted to know was, what's your take on... Uh, empowerment and then resilience and yeah I wanted to learn more about how you see both of those things I appreciate that question a lot Um, because I'm uh, trained as a critical feminist sociologist I don't think um, that I can empower anyone that's not really my um, that's not really my intention right Mm. it's like it's um it's not that I, because it feels like a very sort of power over, right? Mm -hmm. Like I have the power to, I have the power to empower you. So come and work with me, you know? Yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, (laughs) But what I believe can happen is that I can help empower, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the position that I'm coming from, right? If facilitated conversations, with me about what is front of mind for you can create a shift or a transformation for you, then I'm all in. And that's Mm -hmm. absolutely what I want to be doing. Right. Um, So that's sort of the empowerment piece. And the way that I define empowerment is living life on your own terms. Mm -hmm. And that is of course constrained by lots of different factors. Right. Mm -hmm. But how do we work within those constraints and how do we negotiate the barriers and boundaries that we have put up for ourselves, but also are societally present, Mm -hmm. right? So that we can, um, for something cliche, you know, like live our best lives, Mm -hmm. you know, or, or live lives, uh, live our lives in a way where we feel like we're in the driver's seat, Mm -hmm. right? Because a lot of us move through life doing all of the shoulds. And then we hit a particular moment in time and all of that catches up with us and we're like, oh shit. Like mm-hmm. I don't yep. this, I don't want any of this. I don't, I don't want it. I don't, it's not for me, it's making me very unhappy, whatever. And so, and so being able to 
you know, move within um, the power that we have. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that you asked me about resilience because it's a very fraught term, mm-hmm. I think, particularly at, at this point in the pandemic. <laughs> yep, yep, fair enough. <laughs> um, and I think it's been it's been maybe a little bit overused. I mean, particularly when it comes to certain populations, right? Like building resilience in children and youth and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know a lot of people are very sick of the term, right? Mm-hmm. They're like, I don't want to be resilient. I want to nap, you know? Yeah, that's right. That's right. I would very and much like, like to freak out right now, if you don't mind. Yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. I would, I would like to not be strong, nor <laughs> stoic, nor together. Yeah, that's um, right. <laughs> And I totally, I totally get that. Mm. Um, but I guess I f- think and feel that that women and mothers, particularly the ones that I work with, mm. are just inherently resilient, right? Like they are inherently able um, and resourceful and, um, you know, just sort of connected um, to their lives and the lives of their families and the lives of their communities mm-hmm. in ways that require them to pace themselves, mm-hmm. um, to say no, to have appropriate boundaries, to put themselves first. Um, so resilience for me is about negotiating, you know, the pressures and the expectations that are put on women and mothers um, in ways that don't kill you or put you into a stress mm-hmm. burnout cycle. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like understanding not only your capacity, but what you want to handle. And then being able to stand up for yourself to play that game. This is about the amount that I'm going to put on my shoulders and nothing more. But whatever I'm putting here, I want to and I'm accepting that. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. I appreciate that framing. Well, it's something I debate a lot. Like I have a huge, I've always had a huge problem with the word resilience. And that might be because of how I grew into the field. So before I was a counselor, I was a a life coach. So I was trained that way, you know, inspired by like Tony Robbins and all these people until I realized kind of how messed up the the story was that they were telling. I didn't really understand that. But a lot of that had to do resilience as some sort of toughen up word. Yes. Which is exactly the opposite. And so, because if you're just going to toughen up through the hardships of life, eventually you'll break and then have no idea why you broke. But it's really because you're picking up all the baggage or all the stuff that you shouldn't have been in the first place because you didn't want to. And so I think it, it gives a wrong message. So from what you were saying, I was thinking, you know what, that's that's more aligned in, as to how I see it. Understanding who you are, what you want to be picking up in the first place, what you feel you have to, because it's your power to decide that somewhat. Um and then picking it up or putting it down. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, what you're talking about, I mean, with the whole Tony Robbins thing and stuff like that, it is really about sort of like how how can we suppress or how can we mm-hmm. how can right. we how can we overcome processing, mm-hmm. right? Um, in order to present in a powerful way. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, yeah. And sorry, I should also say I'm not claiming to understand or know. Right. Like I'm not a I'm not a subscriber. um, So I shouldn't sort of speak out of turn because I I actually don't know. But the way that it is presented in Mm -hmm. in popular media, that is how it appears to me. Yeah, that's that's how I feel about it, too. Um, With some merits and some pitfalls. 
you know, I do believe that it's powerful to be inspired. And that, that is a big piece, yes. which I think is beautiful. Because inspiration will help you see yourself in a way that you didn't before, which gives you a new experiment to engage in. Um, but sometimes it could be the toughen up narrative, which for my work with men, that's incredibly painful and dangerous. No, absolutely. And I think, I think the same goes for women, um, right? Because we're supposed to, we're supposed to always constantly evaluate how bad is this? Mm-hmm. How bad is this? I mean, I know I feel bad. I know I'm depressed or I know I'm anxious or I know I'm experiencing flashbacks or, you know, from trauma or whatever it is, but mm-hmm. it's not that bad. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's something that I encounter a lot and work with clients. And it's like, this is not about <laughs> comparative suffering, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. This is about like what it is you are experiencing as legitimate. Mm-hmm. And being able to accept that. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems and, like the comparative piece is like uh, almost the defense to sideswipe the, the problem in a way. Right. Absolutely. And it also is sort of steeped in, I think, like Judeo-Christianity and things mm-hmm. like that. Right. Yep. Like, like where it's like, don't don't focus on yourself. You're not like you're fine. Mm-hmm. You're fine. You know, like nothing. It's not, it's not that bad. You know, mm-hmm. pull yourself up like stiff upper lip. <laughs> yeah. Live for, live for everyone else. If you're, yes, if, you're yes. if you're living for yourself, it's selfish, which is the, the guilt response. Yes. And as someone who's raised Catholic, I always joke that we invented it. Like we invented guilt and we're very good at it. Yes. <laughs> we could see it from a mile away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, con- a concept of, well, I guess, weaponized guilt. Because we know there's a difference. Well, actually, I'll throw this your way because you might have dealt with it um, during your academic career. And I would have dealt with it from the other side. But I have this concept of guilt where weaponized guilt is something we use against ourselves and people use against us to put us in a pattern where they want where they want us to be but then some forms of guilt are almost biologically inherent like a radar in the sense of tribal like oh we might have messed something up here now we feel bad about it i should assess how that went so that next time i don't do that and maybe the fear is like an amygdala response to being kicked out of a tribe and i'm wondering what do you think about that um, oh, I'm very critical of <laughs> biological explanations for social behavior. <laughs> cut, me, cut me down a peg. This is what, this is what we're here for. <laughs> um, it's just my orientation to the world. It's like my ontological understanding of like how the world works and mm-hmm. how we operate within it. And while I am not sort of disregarding the fact that we do have, right, a, a connection, a biological connection to our sort of social experiences, right? Mm-hmm. Like what are feelings, what are, you know, emotional responses, like mm-hmm. all of that kind of thing. I just think it's really important that we don't, um, that we don't look to biological explanation for social behavior because oh that's interesting social behavior is um it's always contextual it's always cultural it's always um meaningful right mm. um and so i don't i don't believe and I mean, this is, this is just what I don't believe. It's not necessarily, I mean, an evolutionary, evolutionary biologist would believe this, but I don't, right. Mm -hmm. That 
we can look to more sort of primitive ver versions of our like hominid selves or something mm -hmm. and say and say like this is why they were acting the way that the, they were acting but the reality is that they had codes of conduct they had expectations they had all kinds of things right mm -hmm. that cannot be separated from the social context that they're in and mm -hmm. that is the thing that we in the social sciences should be concerned with right mm -hmm. if people want to go down a a biologically sort of essentialist path, then that's fine. But the way that I have been trained is that we need to be really, really, really cautious about the ways that biological ex explanations are overlaid mm -hmm. on um, social behavior, uh, because it really robs us of a lot of explanation. And it really robs us of a lot of meaning. Yeah, that's a fair point. I guess I'm that is a fair point. So, I mean, what was his name? I always forget his name. Bordeaux? Habitus. Yes. Is that right? Mm -hmm. So we want to pay attention to the habitus of, like, where we're at. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I talk about, like, my upbringing a lot in the, the podcast, where it was, like, a lower, lower class, working class family. And so the way I engage with things are very specific to the rules and, like, the, the game pieces that were at play there. And then those have evolved over time based on which different habitus spaces I've engaged in. Like when I moved from high school to university, I was in an entire area that none of my family has been in. So that was entirely like moving to an alien planet and having to figure out how to be very uncomfortable and sort out, okay, what's the rules of engagement here? How do I fit here and all that places? So is that, is that what you mean? I do. Yeah, that's a component of what I mean, because what you're actually talking about is the way that we become re-socialized, right, mm -hmm. given our social context, mm -hmm. and also the way that social ca capital operates, right? Right, yeah. So the ways in which we have to negotiate our very embodiment mm -hmm. um, in order to fit into spaces that were not necessarily constructed for us and mm -hmm. don't care about our backgrounds. That's right. And so I'm hyper uh, interested in that. I'm so glad you're here. This is great. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how does that come up in therapy? Because I, I would imagine a lot of therapy uh, is about navigating those spaces or understanding that that's what you're navigating. Yeah, and I think so. So I'm going to answer this in maybe a kind of roundabout way, mm. um, and that is so. So as we talked about before, I'm not, I'm not a therapist, right? Mm. I I recognize that I engage in a therapeutic relationship mm. with many of my my clients, um, but I am a sociologist, right? Mm. So I come at it from, if you will, a more macro mm -hmm. perspective. Right. So I this is why I didn't choose psychology in undergrad. Right. Mm -hmm. It was like they wanted to talk about individual brains. And I was mm -hmm. like, no, that doesn't seem interesting. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like they wanted to individualize and pathologize. Mm -hmm. Again, that's a massive like generalization. Right. But to my 18 year old self, mm -hmm. I was like, that's not really interesting to me. Right. 
and when I when I when I discovered actually anthropology because that's what my undergrad is in anthropology and women's studies I was so much more interested in the collective do you know what I mean mm-hmm. I was like oh this is so, this is way more interesting like mm-hmm. why we do the things that we do and 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 having those things meticulously explained right mm-hmm. um by these social scientists that would immerse themselves in culture and then write every single thing down that happened and i was like that is unbelievably interesting mm-hmm. right yeah. um and so that's so when people ask me how how is what i do different from counseling let's say right mm-hmm. um i explain that i come at it from again this very macro place but also it's my job as I see it to contextualize an individual's life in the societal functions that surround them. Mm-hmm. Right. So that includes everything from the institution of the family to the institution of motherhood to mm-hmm. um, uh, the ways that people identify variously, their mm-hmm. social location, the ways that they're caught up in um intersections of oppression, mm-hmm. um, right? All of these things, right? That that constitute my background and my expertise. That is how I treat mm-hmm. someone, right? So I come at it from this contextualization piece. It's like, okay, let's look at what's really happening and how these moving parts are impacting you as an individual so that we can begin to develop strategies and negotiate the complexities, right, Mm -hmm. of your life, which everyone deals with, Mm -hmm. but we all deal with in our own unique ways. Mm -hmm. And how can we, I guess, from a Foucauldian standpoint, identify the practices we're engaged in and the influence that are engaging us and then how do we take like left turns i guess would be another way to put that absolutely what are the ways that we discipline ourselves mm-hmm. what are the ways that we um that we construct ourselves as 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 docile mm-hmm. to what extent do we believe that we have agency mm-hmm. right all of those things yeah agency is such an interesting one when it comes to that especially with the dynamic influences of our day-to-day life. It's like, at, at which point do we, at which point can we identify that we're making a choice? Right. And which choices are constrained and which choices are not constrained, mm-hmm. right? Because agency in our neoliberal world can be taken too far to an extreme, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. This idea, again, Tony Robbins, if you will, um, right? That yeah. we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, even if we have complex mental health issues and um we're living in a body that is um oppressed and and marginalized right Mm -hmm. like so it's that context that we cannot divorce from a person's life because Mm -hmm. it would be irresponsible of me or you or anyone else to be like you can think your way out of this situation Mm -hmm. you can work really hard on yourself and feel better Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Because often we need to be able to understand the things that are oppressing us. We have to be able to understand the way that our agency is constrained in order to be able to function in a world where often the rules are rigged against us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I guess at that point, it's a matter of accepting, I guess, radically accepting where you're at, what you're dealing with, how it feels and 
in a way what you want to do with it. Well, exactly. I mean, it's kind of like, <clears throat> so when I think about body acceptance, I do a lot of work on body acceptance and things like that. And often what it comes down to is I, I like the individual deciding that they are no longer going to have loyalty to the ideas of diet mm -hmm. culture, however they have been manifested in their lives, right? So if you were praised as a child for your thinness, right, mm -hmm. by your parents, then what you can do is actively be disloyal, mm -hmm. right, in your own mind to those ideas as embodied by your parents so that you can get yourself out of this place where it matters what your mom says every time she sees your body. Mm -hmm. How does that play out? I'm curious about that. I mean, we, we see it all the time, but yeah, how does that play out? What do you mean exactly? Like, well, that sounds very like a, it, it's almost like empowering or sparking a, like a rebellious spirit. Yes. Which yes. I love. Yes. Um, and so I'm wondering in your process, how do you cultivate that for someone? Well, with I'm, someone? Really, I'm really, really uh, fortunate because the way that I got into this is because of a social media following. Right. Mm. Um, and so people have been following my work and my words, right. And my construction of motherhood and my construction of my life and things like mm. that for about three years. Right. And so when these people come to me as clients, which I never thought was ever going to happen, but it, it has, and mm. it's absolutely the most incredible thing of my life. Mm. Um, one of them. Um, so when they, these people come to me as clients, they are already, they are already attracted to the rebellious nature of my page, right. Mm -hmm. or of my, of my accounts. Right. And so it's not that the, that the object is always to be like, Oh yeah, we have to like disrupt this shit and we gotta <laughs> you gotta yeah. just like cut everybody out and like never speak to your mom again. <laughs> like it's not that at all. It's not the goal, but um but they see themselves in that, mm -hmm. right? So they come already primed to see themselves in a particular kind of way, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm unhappy or I need to, to change this or I want to change this or I want to do this or whatever it is. And mm -hmm. so maybe Jackie is the conduit to help me get there because I see, I see that thread right mm -hmm. in her work. And so, so then the cultivation is, is with the one, one-on-one, -on -one, the individual work with someone or the group work, right? Some mm -hmm. people work better in group settings where they can feed off of each other and sort of share experiences and be like, yeah, absolutely. That's bullshit or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's very much the result of my, my feminist upbringing. Do mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like these sort of collective consciousness raising <clears throat> groups where it's not just conscious consciousness raising it's conscious con <laughs> it's consciousness changing mm -hmm. and that is enacted in in people's everyday lives when they go away because my work is very much about practice it's not about let's just talk right mm -hmm. about how you're going to practice this in your actual life 
Yeah, it's amazing. The whole process is amazing. One piece of how I see it from from my practice is in is very Deleuzian in the sense of experimentation. Mm. And so when people are coming in, I mean, oftentimes they don't realize that it's okay to feel the way they do. Mm-hmm. And so that is a novel concept. Yes. And so when you add that novel concept and they can... I don't want to say believe it because it's a truth that springs from them, but when they start to realize it, is a better way for me to put that. It's amazing what happens. You don't know what's going to happen. And that's part of the experiment, right? I mean, it's very delusion. We really don't know what's about to happen when I jump off this plateau. Mm-hmm. But I'm doing it. <laughs> Fuck it. Here we go. And then you somehow grow into it, whichever direction. And of course, if you don't like it, then you pivot to somewhere else and you just take it from there. It's alternative practices, I guess is the best way to put that. But it's amazing to watch people go with that. And it's always uh, internally true to them when they start to buy into it. Like, wait a minute, that's true. It's okay that I feel this way. It's okay that this is bullshit. Okay, what am I supposed to do with that? Which I think is one of the most fun parts of the work, in my opinion. Absolutely. And I totally agree with experiment. That's what I tell people all the time. It's like, well, experiment, see what happens. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like people, um, people think I have to do things this way. Right. Mm. And, and like I said, like you said, in my introduction, right. I work with a lot of people who are like me, Mm -hmm. (laughs) a bunch of like type A maniacs, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and, and like, just sort of say, saying to people like, it's okay. You know, like, it's okay that you're a perfectionist. We can just try to do, we can try to do it a different way and see if the world, you know, see if the sky falls and mm-hmm. go from there, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. that's, that is really fun. Yeah, try this. Check your pulse. If you die, we did it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> if you're still alive. Okay. We did it. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. So how does this relate? I mean, I got a sense for it now, but I'm just getting excited about it. Um, how does this relate to the empowerment piece? Well, like how does how does what we're talking about relate to empowerment as a practice in my work? Or yes, and because uh, I, I imagine the way it works, unless I misunderstood, is it's a piece of like self empowerment. Like people are coming in; they're already empowered to see you, which is how I see therapy. It's hard enough for people to pick up the phone, like seek you out, pick up the phone and come to the first session. Mm-hmm. So already there, the empowerment piece is, has built. I need help. I'm going for it. This is scary. I don't want to be here. Nobody wants to talk to a therapist. <laughs> um, but they did it. So something has begun there. Mm-hmm. And through the conversations we have with them, I guess, understanding where they're at, that starts to snowball. And so I'm wondering about your take on that. Well, it's interesting. I mean, even when I was teaching, um, and that's teaching and research is what I did for the majority of my career, and I love to teach. And what I see that I'm doing now is a form of teaching, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason that I think that all of my work sort of culminates around empowerment is because that has always been my goal, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like how are we in this community? How are we in this classroom? How are we in this one-on-one session, mm-hmm. right? Like, how are we moving toward transformational change 
that improves the quality of your life. Mm. Right. And that's, that is the empowerment piece, right? Mm. How can I help facilitate something that takes you out of sort of a bad place and a place of self-hatred and self-loathing and Mm. no compassion and all that kind of thing to a place where you at least have the tools to be able to be kind to yourself half of the time. Mm-hmm. right you know um and and for me that's sort of like a win right mm-hmm. so um so that's how it so that's how I see it I I really see transformation as mm-hmm. empowerment mm-hmm. um and that transformation isn't simply like just for the goal of change but for the goal of life improvement like the quality of your life improvement so by quality of life improvement is it yeah, walk, walk me through that. This is going to be such a philosophic question that I'm throwing at you. How does, what is it to improve one's life? Like when we say my life is improved, what does that mean here? So in a lot of my work, I want to say like 80, 90% of my work, it means the reduction of self-hatred, mm-hmm. the increase in self-compassion, the lessening of fear around living one's life according to one's own rules Mm. and um and what is another component um knowing that you are not bad or wrong Mm -hmm. taking the guilt and shame out Mm -hmm. amazing yeah, I, I view it similarly. I did my master's in capability theory by Amartya Sen and okay. Nussbaum. And so it, for me, it was always about, okay, how do, we, how do we create a space where an individual can start to develop the freedom, the capability, the drive to start pursuing the things they have reason to value, whatever that looks like. And a lot of the times it's how do we, how do we notice the things we value. I find that happens a lot is especially with, with cases similar to myself, you know, you talk about working with clients that are like you and I work with clients like me a lot. And that's the, you know, class A fawners is what I call them. Uh, people pleasers like myself. So I was bullied a lot growing up and that turned me into someone who rather like squish my person into the depth so I could protect it and then highlight everybody else. So nobody looks at me kind of thing. And so part of the process of bringing that back out was being willing to and able to see those threads or I could, sparks to pull them like, oh, maybe this would be interesting or, oh, I got a lot out of this. Oh, music is fun. Let's go this kind of those directions. But helping people be able to hear the hum of the things that spark them and be willing to move towards them, whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. It's a lot of fun. I talk about therapy as a lot of fun, which I know is for some people hearing that, like, what the hell? I agree. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) It's a way to come into your own, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, again, we talked about this, but like, who doesn't want someone to like, just listen to them and empathize. Mm. And like, I think, I think therapy is amazing, no matter which side of it I'm on. (laughs) Mm -hmm, That's right. Yeah. I'm like a, a therapy all, all for it. I know it's always funny being on the other side. Mm. You know, I know it is for me uh, just sitting there. You know, my, my therapist 
she's amazing. She puts up with my shit really well. But it's when it's when she can notice the different hats that I'm using. This oh. is a, like a recent thing in the past couple of weeks where she's like, so is that your therapist hat you just slipped on? Or is that your Chuck hat? Like, which one did you give me there? And then I have to be like, damn it. <laughs> she called me out. <laughs> yeah. Busted. Just let me take a drink and then I'll be right back with you. <laughs> to be more honest about what I was trying to say. Right, exactly. <laughs> which is a huge, I mean, that's a difficult piece to cultivate in such an intimate environment too, when you're oh. laying your soul bare. Because you have to spend a lot of time playing with your defenses. And how you're protecting yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a new language to learn about how not to to bullshit yourself because you're only bullshitting yourself to protect yourself. Mm -hmm. Right? Never self-sabotage, always trying to protect, but sometimes it just gets in the way to where you want to go. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So I guess my next question, I wanted to hover around your expertise with motherhood because it's something I know, it's, it's issues and concepts that come up that I know little about. It's not something I deal with. Um, so I'm hoping to learn a lot about what goes on there. Um, so what what are some things that you see uh, that you work with and that you'd want to, let's say our listeners, to like get sparked from? Like what's, what's the struggles? How does it come up? And that sort of thing. I think if I could crystallize it into one central issue, mm-hmm. it is that women internalize the expectations of motherhood even before they're they're pregnant or even before they're you know they're considering having a child mm-hmm. um and this for me was like the most strange and and um sort of terrifying piece of becoming a mother because i had gotten until i was what you know, 35, 36 years old, knowing how I disrupt womanhood, right? Like mm-hmm. knowing how I don't fit into the narrative of, you know, of proper femininity, of all kinds of things, right? Mm-hmm. And I had started cultivating that when I was about 13. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I had a long time to like figure that out, right? Mm-hmm. And then within this very short window of time, I had to reimagine myself as a mother. Right. It's like my my daughter was there and there was. So Mm -hmm. it didn't really matter that I had spent (laughs) over 12 years like studying all of this stuff and like Mm -hmm. being really intimately aware of like theoretically um, how sort of problematic the institution of motherhood is and how oppressive motherhood is and all of that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. You know, I knew it intellectually it came slamming down on me when I actually had my daughter mm-hmm. <clears throat> and all of that stuff, right. That I had internalized the expectation of how I was supposed to be a mother. It just like broke me, you know, mm-hmm. I was like, I cannot, I can't, you know? And mm-hmm. of course at the time it, I, I didn't, I wasn't able to like articulate that to myself. Mm-hmm. I wasn't able to say like, oh, this is, you're struggling because this is not what you want. And this is not how you want to be a mother. And this is not how you, whatever. Mm-hmm. It was just more like, you know, depression, <laughs> postpartum depression and anxiety, mm-hmm. right? Which is, mm-hmm. which is not also just a sort of thought piece, right? There's also a lot of, you know, stuff happening mm-hmm. postpartum. Um, so so that just made me feel like a bad person, right? Like you have, you've, you've 
brought this baby into the world and then you're like oh fuck you know yeah and (laughs) and so that just makes you feel like a monster right Mm -hmm. because I was so caught up in you know my own stuff um that I you know I I didn't have all of the feelings that I was supposed to have I didn't Mm -hmm. have all of that massive love you know people were saying these things that just felt completely like they were speaking a different language you know Mm -hmm. like oh my god don't you just love hers and your heart bursting and I was just sort of like well I can't stop crying like is that (laughs) is that it (laughs) is that it is that motherly love I don't know you know Mm -hmm. and so it took it took time right to recognize that I had a lot of feelings about mothers Mm -hmm. right um and what motherhood meant and Mm -hmm. I didn't fit into any of those I didn't understand myself as a mother Mm. I mean still when I think about myself as a mother I'm like I'm a mother that's hilarious you know like that's (laughs) (laughs) that's so weird (laughs) it's kind of like how you realize like you're over 40 you're like that's so funny (laughs) um that's right yeah yeah um so so what happens is right so someone told me early 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 on they were like you're lucky that this is happening you know like she wasn't being a jerk about it she was just being like you're so fortunate that this is happening to you right now because you get to question who you are as a mother and what this is going to look like for you you know and and so it's a gift and I didn't really see it like that, of course, because mm-hmm. I was pretty mired in postpartum depression off and on for, yeah. you know, a long time. And so she was right, though, because I was able to define motherhood on my own terms, because mm-hmm. for me, it was a it, it was a legitimate act of survival. Right. Mm-hmm. It was like, I, I am this or I die. So, yep. <laughs> yep. I walk yeah. the plank or I get this on, I get this going. What am I yes, doing? Here? Exactly. Like it's, it felt <clears throat> that sort of black and white to me, mm-hmm. you know? And so I guess what I aim to do through social media, through all of my work with clients and things like that is to just be like, it's okay to not like this. It's okay to, that you're not meeting all of these expectations, external mm-hmm. and internal you get to define motherhood on your own terms and you do not always have to take the back seat. Mm-hmm. So my main principle is if you're not well, nobody's well, you are the center, mm-hmm. right? And people don't like that. People don't like mothers being like, I put myself first, all that kind of stuff. And I don't really give a fuck because if, <laughs> because for me again, it's like, am I here on this planet being a parent to my daughter and a partner to my partner or am I not? Mm-hmm. And and so that for me is the importance of putting yourself first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's so important. Uh, it resonates a lot because it's, you're, you're so right about the Christian G- Judeo viewpoint, right? Cause that's where things get really fucked up. Mm-hmm. is where we have to serve the community before ourselves. It's labeled as selfish. But at the end of the day, how are you supposed to be a mother if you don't take care of yourself? You know, if you're dead, there's not much you can do about being a mother if you're dead. 
<laughs> right? And whether it's like a living death, which is something I talk about with my clients a lot, where you're just going through the motions for other people, picking up everybody else's stuff and forgetting about yourself. That's a living death because you'll wake up at 50, 60 and realize, oh, wait, what about me? I forgot about me already. Um, so I guess it's a way of orienting yourself a little bit better towards what's actually going on. Like you're the one breathing. Nobody's breathing for you. You have to breathe for yourself. And recognizing that you're worth it because you know what is the shittiest fucking thing about women is that so many of us have experienced trauma in our lives and mm -hmm. things like that, that this, uh, this concept of worth or enoughness, mm -hmm. right. Or just the con like growing up feeling bad. Like mm -hmm. I'm just bad, you know, I'm not, I'm not worthy. I'm bad. I'm problematic in whatever way. Right. Mm -hmm. So combine that with, Oh, and I'm also supposed to put myself last. I'm also mm -hmm. supposed to be selfless. So like, good luck having any joy in your life. Good luck mm -hmm. having any kind of, you know, satisfaction or contentment. Mm -hmm. And honestly, a hundred percent of the time for me, it's about contentment. It's like, how can we, how can we cultivate contentment in your life? Mm -hmm. You know, you don't need to be happy all the time. You don't need to be, and this goes back to the point about quality of life right? It's like mm -hmm. you deserve, you deserve contentment with periods of joy and periods of sorrow. That's right. That's right. Because I mean, the, the pursuit is not to be happy. Nobody is happy all the time. It's just not what we're built for. We're built for stress. <laughs> it's just, it's stressful to get up in the morning. It's stressful to do everything, but that's part of the, that's part of being alive. That's, I, I, I do call it the joy of being alive. Um, you know, it's, it's thrilling to stub your toe and be super pissed about it just as much as watch a comedy and laugh your head off. It's the fact that you're here to do it is amazing in the first place. Yeah, and like we, you know, both you, you and I have talked about now, you're, you and my podcast or in my show or whatever, mm -hmm. and me here, is like when you flirt, when you flirt with the edge of death, right? Like mm -hmm. stuff looks different, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, it's a, the moment of like, uh, what do they call it? Momento mori. Was that? Yeah, in Latin. Was it Latin? I'm all screwed up now because I'm getting excited about the conversation. But <laughs> Momento mori is where they had tokens of the dead in their house. And the point of it was to remember death. And it wasn't just some morbid thing. It was to say like, listen, <laughs> the fact that you're here is amazing in the first place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Don't forget to live your life. You get one shot do what you need to do, do what you want to do in whatever capacity you can. Mm -hmm. And, and I think I really thought that I understood, like, I thought that I understood depression because mm -hmm. I had had sort of, you know, ep like episodes of depression, mm -hmm. um, in my life, but it wasn't until I was clinically depressed with postpartum depression, um, that I was like, oh, <laughs> Like, this is terrible, mm -hmm. you know, like, this is really, really awful. And I had no idea, you know, mm -hmm. I thought I knew, but I had no idea. And and that's why it's important to talk about it, right? Like, mm -hmm. that's why it's important to talk about it. Because if you have not experienced it, you do not know, 
you know, you just yeah. do not know how bad it is, right? Mm -hmm. And when healthcare professionals or whatever give you this prescription of like, well, just, you know, eat right and exercise, <laughs> you're just sort of like, um. <laughs> I am stuck in a black hole here. No exercise bike is going to get me out of this, okay? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Peloton is not going to win. <laughs> do not tell me to chew GABA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, yeah, it's, and that's why it's important to connect with people who do know, right? Mm. Who, who, who know what it's like to think about the time that you felt that way mm. and still be terrified. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a big component of it, I think, on the other side, too, because with, with depression, I've noticed from going through what I went through and back, is it almost, it's an entity that demands isolation. And so a lot of the things that slip you into depression are already isolating. Mm. And then the entity itself wants isolation. That's why I always call it like a black hole or a vacuum is it wants you to be alone. And if you're not able to talk about it, then you become in a very dangerous place because the only person you have to talk about how sad you are, how upset you are, how much it hurts or how existence is absurd, like all these things that show up is yourself. And you only have one narrative and one body to try to work through that. And that's impossible, depending on where you're at. Mm -hmm. That's that why it's means... so important that any any of us who can, right, speak about it. I don't, I don't require everyone, right, mm -hmm. to speak about their postpartum depression or whatever. But yeah. it's like any of us who can speak about it, I believe that we should, right? Mm -hmm. Because, just because, right? Like it's so so important that other people hear you say there's another side right mm -hmm. you get through yeah anyway i'm getting all emotional about this <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was just thinking of something a friend of mine said and i'll definitely leave it here and we'll move on uh, because i didn't get that vacuum analogy on my own this is from a friend in university who talked about how you know when you're when you can commiserate in it with someone who knows how you feel it's a lot like you're both sitting in that black lake holding a candle mm. you're just like oh yeah me too right. and it makes it a lot less lonely yeah. and that's a start it really is it really is and just to feel for me it was like feeling understood mm. I was just like oh god thank god you know thank god I am not just like this monster mother who yeah. <laughs> is the only person on earth who has ever felt this way you know that's right yeah mm. And I see it with men's work all the time with vulnerability. It's like, wait, other men cry too? Mm. You're crying right now and I'm telling you about, you know, grief situation and you're my therapist? Well, yeah, that's sad. What do you want from me? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's like giving permission to take on these alternative practices that seem so foreign from the box you're in. And I think that's empowering in itself. Amen. Yeah, amazing. We got to a heavy spot here. I'm feeling that. <laughs> well, thanks very much. I mean, we're that was a lot. <laughs> that was very rich and heavy, which I knew was going to happen when we talked. Um, so before I before I end the the cat podcast today, I just want to throw out two things. The first will be if you had any last minute thoughts, like anything you'd want the crowd to know about what we talked about. Um, some people throw out like exercises, practices, some people throw out like books, resources. It's really anything that comes to mind as we were talking. 
And then second, I, I wanted to know if you could uh, tell everybody where to find you because your, your social media presence is like robust and fantastic. And so it'd be great if people can find it uh, from these circles as well. Well, thank you. Um, <clears throat> I think I think the, the thing that I want to say that sort of brings everything that we were talking about together is like my bio said, it took me a long time to just like be who I am and, and for that to be okay with me. Mm. Right. And um, I think that that is sort of the most important journey that I have been on in my life Mm -hmm. and that I continue to be on and that I try to help others with. And so I guess what I want to say is like, don't fight your nature. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Just like, just be who you are. It's okay. It's okay. Mm. Even if other people don't like it, because the more I move into who I am, the more like realized a human I am, Mm -hmm. right? Like the closer I come to my own nature, because I spent a lot of time resisting my nature Mm -hmm. because I wasn't supposed to be that. Right. That's right. That's right. And um, yeah. And, and if you're listening and you want to do that work, like come see Chakra. (laughs) 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 And the places that you can find me. So I'm on Facebook and Instagram at eating her young, which is funny memes, my motherhood journey, um, my life, stuff like that. So mm. then my business um, page is uh, at Empowerment for Resilience. And that's both Facebook and Instagram too. On Facebook, I run a mom's group that doesn't suck called Mummy Voices. And um, oh, and I also have a show on YouTube called mm. Talk and Ship with Dr. Jackie. I think that's everything. Awesome. Well, it's great stuff. It's great to have you on the show. I look forward to having you back. We had uh, a lot of fun that was very rich and powerful. So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. All right, everybody, you can find me on Instagram. You know where I am. You know where my podcasts are because you're listening to them. So I won't say that. But thanks for listening to the show and we'll see you next week. Take care. (laughs) 